let's jump into to First Peter. Uh, if you have been tracking with us for a few weeks, we've been going through this chapter of the Bible. If you're here for this for the first time this morning, I'm going to recap a little bit of where we got to. Um, but when the Bible speaks about the church and what we're doing right now this morning, it uses a variety of very interesting images, dynamic images. So as we've seen as we work through Second Peter, First Peter chapter two, he calls us a spiritual house, which actually the word is temple. So he calls us the temple of God, the place where God dwells. He calls us a chosen race. He calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us a holy nation. He tells us that we're his special possession. And then if you broaden it out to how the New Testament talks about uh, the church. Sorry about the kids. In a minute, they'll be doing oggy, oggy, oggy. And we'll all have to join in because that's what Nick does. So Uh, anyway, I digress. When the New Testament talks about the when you broaden out the words it uses, it talks about a bride being prepared for a wedding day. It talks about us being an active body, connected to and directed by our heads, Jesus Christ. It calls us the family of God. It calls us the army of the Lord, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It calls us a city on a hill. All of these interesting terms for the Bible. But <clears throat> no doubt, if we went outside and we stopped the first person we saw... And we asked them to say, tell us what you think. How would you describe? What metaphor would you use for the church? They might say, ah, fossils in a dusty museum. Or, well, you know, it's like a candle, isn't it? Like flickering, but the world around us is like the bright sunshine. And so you don't really see what's going on. Or maybe they just say, well, isn't the church... Uh, A social club dedicated to uh, funny rituals and outdated music and archaic buildings. And you believe in all of those kind of stubbornly restrictive rules and beliefs and practices that some ancient book written by a bunch of Jewish guys uh, wrote. Now, they might not say all of that, but that's generally the distinction between how the Bible talks about us and how the average Joe on the street talks about us. Now, how would you answer the question of why the church exists and who we are? Because that's what Peter's getting at in 1 Peter chapter 2. Can we explain who we are and do we know why we are? Can we explain who we are and do we know why we are? And wonderfully, Peter's giving us some unbelievable clarity on the answer to that question. And it's, it's information and truth that if we grasp it, it's going to change the way we think about the church. So let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read 4 to 10 again. Then we'll pray. Then we'll jump in and see what God has to say to us this morning. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a 
holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Sorry. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word and the fact that you are giving us unbelievable help to know who we are as a church and what you've called us to do. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit to change our understanding of of the church in ways that will never be the same again so that we might live for your glory. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, verses 4 to 8, two weeks ago, we looked at how Peter describes the church as the greatest building. That we are being built together as a spiritual house, built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Then last week we looked at verses 9 and 10 and how Peter describes the church with, he endows us with the greatest privileges that God speaks about his people in the Old Testament. That all of the titles, all of the privileges, all of the things that, how God defined the Old Testament people of Israel are now transferred and put upon the church of Jesus Christ, upon us. And we said in verse 10 at the end that it's all by the mercy of God. Isn't it? It's all by the mercy of God. So we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we should because it's all, all that we have is by the mercy of God. And the story of God's mercy is not just one time merciful, but it's multiple mercies, isn't it? Day after day after day. Your story and my story. Not just that God was merciful to us in the past, but that he continues day after day. Just as we were reminded this morning when Sarah read, the, the mercies of the Lord, they knew Every morning, great is his faithfulness, Lamentation 3. Now, Peter's writing to elect exiles, uh, Christians living on the outer rim of the Roman Empire, who were being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The world that they live in is hostile to them, not dissimilar to us. And his point in writing the book is so that he's trying to convey to them and to us that though people around them, though the world around them considers them to be irreverent and irrelevant nobodies, and even though they experience humiliation and shame because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they're precious to God. Precious to him because they, he's chosen them, he's called them to serve him, he's the king and he calls them to be his citizens of a heavenly kingdom. He's made us and them his Church And the church is not incidental to God's plans for, un- for the universe and for history. The church is central to God's plans for eternity. And he's going to tell us now what we're called to do. Now, before we just jump into that, there's a couple of temptations that come to Christians when the world is against us. Okay, that I can think about. Two general principles that we might or temptations that we might be drawn towards when the world sets its face against us. The first one is this, isn't it? That when the world is against us, we isolate ourselves from the world to protect ourselves from the world. That we remove ourselves from society because we we, we disengage so that we won't get hurt, so that we won't get persecuted, so that we won't endure suffering. And so we say, okay, if the world is against us, we will just take our bat home and we'll just live amongst ourselves as Christians, 
We will huddle together in a little Christian community and we'll isolate ourselves and we'll insulate ourselves from the world. And that's generally sometimes what happens. Christians go off and they live in, how, you know, communes and monasteries and they try and get away from the world because we want to remove ourselves from the world's evil and from the world's persecution. The other alternative that's put forward is that as Christians we should change the world. So if the world is hostile to us, let's become heavyweights and let's become influencers in every sphere of life. So in education and in politics and in business and in entertainment and in science and in every kind of sphere of life, we need Christians at the forefront of society to show the world how great we are. And we try and change the world through our efforts and through our activism and through our social justice so that we can try and create heaven on earth. Now, actually... Both extremes are wrong, wrong-headed and a little bit naive. And that's not what Peter calls us to do in either case. He doesn't call us to remove ourselves from the world, nor does he call us to call us to change the world through activism. In fact, he gives us the purpose in verse 9 of why we exist as a church. Read with me again verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, or in your translation it might be, so that you. And there's a purpose clause right there, so that you. So, and that's helpful to, help, to understand why God does the things that he does. Why has God made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Why does he call us a people for his own possession? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Peter here gives us the purpose of the church, the mission statement of the church, that the church exists not to call attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to God and his glory. We exist not to call attention to ourselves, but to draw people's attention to God and his glory. And so Peter is telling us just in those few words, that purpose clause, so that you might. He gives us the reason that God has done everything that he has done from verse 3 of chapter 1 all the way through to verse 10. Why has God caused us to be born again to a living hope? Why has he given us an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, that's kept in heaven for us and that he's keeping us for? Why has he caused us to be, to be born again to this living hope? Why has he put us in his church? Why has he called us his household? Why has he made us a chosen race? Why has he called us a priesthood? Why has he made us a holy nation? Why are we his precious possession? So that we might draw attention to his glory and his fame. Just as God delivered Israel out of Egypt and Babylon to form them into his people so that they might declare his praises. And we read from Isaiah 43 last week and you can go back to Isaiah 43 uh, verse 7 and verse 21. You see uh, Isaiah saying God calls people from Babylon so that they might declare his praises. And that, that chapter is, is I think, uh, undergirding much of what Peter is saying here. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt and out of Babylon to praise him, so he now calls the church, people like you and me, out of darkness. But not the darkness of Egypt or Babylon, but from the darkness of sin, the darkness of death 
into not Jerusalem and Israel, but into his light, into his life, into his freedom and into his forgiveness. He calls us from darkness into his light by his own immeasurable glory and mercy so that we might now make much of him. So that we might now make much of Jesus, our saviour. So that, as Sarah reminded us this morning, so that we might proclaim him to one another when we gather, so that we remind ourselves of his glory, of his excellencies, of the fact that we were once in darkness, but now we're in light. God has called us so that we might proclaim the glory of who he is. That means that all of the identities and all of the privileges that God gives to us as a church are not an end in themselves. They are given to us so that we might lift our eyes and see the cosmic and eternal purposes of God that he's given to us to declare his infinite worth to the universe because of the salvation that we've experienced in Jesus. So Peter tells us the call of the church is to not to live for ourselves, not to just get caught up in small worldly ambitions or to seek our own will, uh, our own well-being. God has called his church from darkness into light so that we might proclaim the light giver and the darkness shatterer. That is our purpose. I'm just going to cough here now. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the word proclaim here that you read in the text is only ever used here in the New Testament. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it is an Old Testament word dripping with huge, huge uh, uh, overtones. And it's used repeatedly throughout the Psalms. And it, it's a word that means to, to publish or to advertise or to make widely known or to get on the rooftop and shout aloud proclaim the excellencies now this is a this is a word that might be unusual to us because we don't really speak about excellencies of of individuals or people but the word literally means manifestations of God's power that are characterized by excellence so when you put these things together we're called as a church to shout about the power and the excellence of our God who saved us from darkness and brought us into light. We're to shout out, to advertise, to proclaim, to make widely known the wonderful deeds, the mighty deeds of God's salvation. Simple. That's what we're here for. We're to remind ourselves and we're to proclaim it to the world. And the church is, if now track with me, Hopefully this will, this will stick in your minds. The church is sinners transformed by the mercy of God, built into the greatest building, bestowed with the greatest privileges so that we might proclaim the greatest glory of the greatest showman, if you like, Jesus. Greatest building, greatest privileges, the great purpose of proclaiming the great news of our great God. That is what we're here for, to make known how God has accomplished the most wonderful, the most amazing, the most overwhelming, the most incredible, the most unbelievable almost, redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ. 
you and I were once undeserving sinners. The New Testament in various other places describes us as being born into darkness, as walking in darkness, <coughs> as people who love darkness. And then in a moment, God calls us by his gracious, irresistible call and we receive his mercy. And as Paul writes in Colossians 1, 12 and 13, we're to now give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has transferred us from his kingdom of, uh, from the, sorry, the darkness of the kingdom of the devil and death and sin and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and in doing so he's called us to proclaim that good news so that others might join us in the light so two ways that scholars argue that this proclamation happens and they wrestle with these two ways in the commentaries and in the text and they say How, what does what does peter mean by proclaim what does he mean by advertise? What does he mean by shout from the rooftops? And they, they argue, well, they don't argue amongst themselves, but they talk about two different ways that this happens. And then having argued about the two different ways, they all say it's both. Okay, and this is the two things that they say proclamation includes. Worship and witness. Worship and witness. How do we proclaim the excellencies of, the, of him who called us out of darkness into his most wonderful light? We do it through worship and witness. So we're just going to take a, a few moments to consider both of these topics together. Worship and witness as part of our proclamation. So let's begin with worship. So what, what I think Peter has in mind here is whenever the church gathers, whenever we come together, we're to proclaim the excellencies, the saving acts, the gospel of Jesus Christ with joyful singing, with, by giving thanks, by celebrating and rejoicing in the mercy that is ours through Jesus Christ. With our lips, with our voices, with our bodies. We're to worship him. That our focus as we come together as the church is to lift high the name of Jesus in thanksgiving. And to delight in his goodness that has come to us that we didn't deserve. That we can't earn. And that we don't pay back. If you remember in verse 5, we talked about how God has made us a spiritual priesthood. And we, we talked about we're to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then I took us to four passages where the language of sacrifice is used. We talked about Romans 12 and we talked about Philippians 4 and we talked about Hebrews 13. And in Hebrews 13, 15, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the lips, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So one of the ways we offer up spiritual sacrifices as the priesthood in the building of the temple of God, we're to offer the fruit of our lips. We're to offer our singing. We're to offer our voices. We're to offer our thanksgiving because we've acknowledged his name. And not just, oh, he's called Jesus. No, his name, his reputation, his character, his nature. Our worship is a response to who he is. So Nancy Lee DeMoss, a commentator uh, on 
the book of Psalms once said this about the book of Psalms and worship. She said, worship is a believer's response to God's revelation of himself. It is expressing wonder and awe and gratitude for his worthiness, for the greatness and the goodness of our Lord. Worship is the appropriate response to God's person, his provision, his power, his promises, <clears throat> excuse me, and his plans. So when we gather, there should be an excitement about gathering, a readiness to respond to God and his mercy with joyful acclamation, with shouts of praise, with loud, passionate, intense, heartfelt, expressive singing and bodily functions that are all called and commanded in the scriptures so that we might reflect back to God the radiance of his worth. So the scriptures call us to clap, to sing, to bow, to kneel, to lift our hands, to shout, to play instruments, to dance. So I'm just going to demonstrate afterwards. To stand in awe and silence sometimes. And all of these and more are, are, are ways we can honour God and worship him and proclaim his excellencies. And express our gratefulness to him and offer the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Now, of course, don't, don't get me wrong. This is not a call just to come on, everybody. Let's just be joyful for Jesus. No, uh, it's a response to who God is. It's a response to what he's done. And although we all have different personalities and although we have different um, ideas of expressiveness, not, we're not looking for one size fits all. We all have varying degrees of displays of emotion in our character and in our personalities. This is not Peter or me calling us to, come on, everybody, sing. We really got to sing like we mean it. Or we just got to jump higher for Jesus. We've all got to be like JD now. No, although we are all different, God calls us to reserve the highest of our physical bodily expressions for him. So whatever is, whatever you would do to express your love for your wife or your children or the joy of your football team scoring a goal or the joy of listening to music or whatever it might be, that should pale into second compared to our expressiveness for Jesus. And the Bible calls us to that. It commands us to that. Now, so often we get stuck in fear of man and we worry about what everybody's going to think of us. But the Bible calls us to say, hey, God is more worthy of our singing and our physical expression than your reputation before the person sat next to you or behind you. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our very lives. So to sing, to clap, to bow, to kneel, to lift our hands as is appropriate, to worship him with abandon is appropriate and called for and commanded. Don't let the fact that you're not just not a very expressive person hold you back. Be as expressive as you can be for God. Reserve that, heart, that place of expression for God. If you struggle with the fear of man, get your eyes off yourself. Repent and realize that you should be living first and foremost for the audience of one. Another way we come in and we don't engage when we worship is because we feel like hypocrites. We feel a bit hypocritical. We feel like, well, it's just not going on in my heart this morning. And I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want to just be like a whitewashed tomb. 
alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. And that's com there's a commend something commendable about that, of course. But a better response than zoning out and disengaging would be to acknowledge where our hearts are at. To acknowledge our lack of desire. To acknowledge our lack of love for God in that moment. And to repent. And to ask God to, to fill our minds. To, to speak to ourselves. As Sarah encouraged us this morning from John Piper. To, to speak the truths and the excellencies of God to our heads and to our hearts. To consider his kindness to us. His mercy to us. His holiness to us. His grace to us. His goodness towards us. And then to take a step of faith. And act in faith. Trusting that God is worthy of our response and that he will, as we respond to him, give us greater passion for him. Vaughan Roberts in Oxford once said this in a book about worship. Those of us who come from the United Kingdom are generally more British than we are biblical. We tend to be scared of showing emotion and so we sing the most wonderful truths with expressions that are better for the morgue. <laughs> it's got a great way of saying it. Don't be more British than biblical. Don't sing about the glories of God with a face that would be more appropriate in a morgue. God calls us to proclaim. To proclaim to one another. To proclaim to him. To proclaim to ourselves. The excellencies the mighty manifestations of his power that have called you from darkness and sin and death and judgment into his light. And if our hearts have been captured and captivated by the glories and the excellencies of God seen in his gospel, there should be an inevitable expression of joy, an inevitable expression of thankfulness, God is particularly interested in our joy. That's why we began this morning from Psalm 32, where God says to us, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous ones, for those who've been called from darkness to light, those who've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, all you upright. That's why we began with that in Psalm 32. That's why we read from Psalm 130 this morning as well. Jenny did a great job where the psalmist says, Lord, out of the depths of my heart, I cry to you, hear my plea for mercy. And then he reminds himself, if you counted all of my transgressions, who could stand? The answer being, eh. No one. But with you there is forgiveness of sins. With you there is forgiveness of sins. He then goes on, God himself. God himself will save his people from their iniquities. Now the psalmist David didn't know in its fullness that that would be Jesus, but we do. And yet he says, doesn't he, in the verse before, with you there is plentiful redemption be glad rejoice clap your hands jump around dance 
Play your instruments, lift your hands, kneel, stay silent. Whatever it might be in that moment to express our deepest and strongest and purest affections, our worship should show it when we gather together. God is interested in our joy. More than anybody on earth, Christians should be the most joyful people on the planet. And we should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light when we gather together. Because the church exists not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to Jesus. We're here to worship. Now, secondly, the scholars say we're here to witness as well. So we're here to worship and we're here to witness. The, the blessings of being God's people do not terminate on us. We don't exist for ourselves, if you like. We exist. We've been called out of darkness. We have been called into the community of God's people so that we might proclaim to those who don't know him the mercies of God that can bring them from darkness to light. That we exist to proclaim the saving power of God. So when we when we gather together as a church, part of what we do, and then when we scatter from here, what we do is we are to leave here with an attitude reminded that our God has been merciful to us, not so that his mercy just concentrates down in our hearts, but that it might radiate from us to others. Proclamation is about having an attitude of radiation, not of consecration, uh, of concentration. It's not coming to God on a Sunday morning and say, Lord, just bless me so that I can have the easiest, most pain-free, most cushy life this week. Concentrate all your mercy on me, Lord, I pray. No, it's coming and saying, Lord, give me more of your grace. Give me a deeper understanding of Jesus. Help me to love the gospel more. Capture my heart more. Help me to slay the temptations that the world offers of seduction and persecution and to, its attempts to turn my eyes away from Jesus. Help me to look and see so that I might be joyful and that joy in Jesus might radiate out from me in proclamation to others. See, God has saved us for far more than just what we have received and experienced, good as it is. He saved us as individuals. He's brought us together as his church to be a living and a tangible and a visible revelation of his saving power. As a church, we exist to make the gospel visible and to broadcast the gospel message to say, Look, the gospel is true. The gospel is real. The gospel really does work. And any idiot can get in on it. Because I did. And as we encounter God and hear his word proclaimed and experience his mercy and feel his spirit at work in our hearts, our burden to share the gospel, to, uh, to show the gospel, to speak the gospel, to make him known and to get his saving message out there, to proclaim his excellency should grow. As we recognize everything that we have is mercy. I am an idiot and God has saved me. And anybody can get in on this. They just need to hear it and believe. And how will they hear it and believe if I don't go and tell them? So part of our proclamation as a church is we come on Sundays to be encouraged and that's vital. But then when we scatter, we go strengthened, we go built up, we go uh, you know, embra you know, uh, braced, ready to head out into the world, ready to proclaim. 
ready to take advantage of the opportunities that God makes for us beyond our families, beyond our Sunday gatherings, in the community out there to make him known. Now, to be a witness is not, you don't have to be gifted and eloquent and uh, engaging in personal evangelism. To be the best witness that you can be, you just need to be excited. I think I've used this illustration before, but if I told you, I love Ben and Jerry's ice cream and it's wonderful, you might go, great. Yeah, good option, I guess. But if I start to describe to you the gorgeous cookie dough pieces and how they melt in your mouth, together with the vanilla ice cream and that little whirl of chocolate sauce. And if you don't like the cookie dough, what about the brownies? Or the banana, or those ones with the solid caramel cores. You seen those? Or the marshmallow pieces. Or the fish food. Or, if you're not into that, the cherry Garcia. Or the one that tastes like lemon sorbet. That really cleanses your palate. Who wants to leave now? Let's just close out the meeting and go get Ben and Jerry's, right? Yeah. Okay. That's how we proclaim. We speak about Jesus in a way that we say, I'm excited about him. He's changed my life. I'm headed for eternal glory because of mercy that I didn't deserve. See, one of the central principles of being a witness is that you just got to be awestruck by God's goodness and grace. You've got to be gripped in such a way that it infuses your heart. It's captured your mind. It overflows into everyday life. You... Evangelism training is wonderful. We've done it. Evangelism courses are great and we'll do them again. But what we need more than anything else that will really make a difference in a world headed headlong to hell is people that are so excited about Jesus that we can't help talk about him. That he so captured our hearts that It affects our words, it affects our actions, it affects our attitudes, it affects our behaviour. It it changes the way we conduct our relationships amongst one another. It shapes our ambitions, it shapes our motivations, it it affects our gentleness and our thoughtfulness and the character of our, our, our character attributes. It affects our love and our care and our respect and our serving of other people. And that all creates a platform for us to be able to explain why we're different so evangelism often people think about mission is it's just another ball that i've got to juggle in my busy christian life and i'm here to tell you this morning through the bible that actually you should think about mission like this you could be the google maps that leads someone towards jesus by the way that you live And the way that you speak. And the way that you act. And if they will listen then, tell them why. So show them why you're different. And then tell them why you're different. And you could be the Google map. Ever thought about that yourself? It could be the Google map that leads people towards Jesus. The destination of Jesus. They look on and they say, why are you different? What do you have that I don't have? And these ways of living can create a platform for us to shout aloud, to proclaim, to make known, to advertise, to publicize. It's Jesus. He's better than Ben and Jerry's ice cream. 
And our, the joy that we have is to proclaim to all who are broken, all who are hurt, all who are oppressed, all who are abused, all who are currently living in darkness, that Jesus has come and he's the bright shining light. He's the light at the end of your tunnel that you need. He's come, he's come to shine the light of God into the dark world, to push back the darkness, to bring an end to all of your hurt and your abuse and your disappointment and your brokenness. He's come to offer hope and life and forgiveness and healing and righteousness and justice and peace. If you will respond in repentance and faith, and if you do so, you can enter into this. Anybody can get in on this. That's the joy we have as Christians to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, one of the ways in which I just want to think about this in our last few minutes together is obviously we can take this as what is said about proclaiming and individualize it immediately. And we can think, man, all right, okay, so now I just have to go away and I've got to be more excited about Jesus than Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Okay, I think I can do that. <sighs> take 10 breaths and then we make, we, we take 10 steps and then we immediately encounter the world and we go, oh, no, I can't do this on my own. And that's right, really. We can't do this on our own, okay? Peter's addressing the church corporate here to proclaim his excellencies you know, personal evangelism is important, yes. Reaching out to your neighbors, friends, family is important, yes. But we're better and stronger together than we are on our own. And so sharing the good news of Jesus and demonstrating the power of the gospel is better done together than it is alone. Now, I'm not just talking about come to the kids club meeting and serve together in an outreach way. Great. Very good. Please do come because it's important. But what I'm thinking about here is mob evangelism, if you like, working together as the church to invite non-Christians into our shared life, not just on Sundays, but in the week so that they can see our love for one another, so that they can see how we function together. The, the church as community is intended by God to be the most compelling evidence for why the power of the gospel is true and real. That people, real people, not just me, I might be the only Christian that my neighbour Mark knows, and he can see, hopefully, oh, he's a Christian, he's different. But if he comes into a group of 70, 80, 100 people, or even smaller groups of 6, 12, however many, and he sees, oh, it's more than just Nathan. It's more than just Claire. There's a whole bunch of Christians. And the way that they love one another, and that the way that they show costly, tender-hearted, sacrificial patience and graciousness towards one another, the gentleness that they have, the thoughtfulness, the care, the respect, the love. There's something to this Christianity that I hadn't really thought about before. I think Peter is trying to get us to see the church together, gathered corporately, and gathered informally throughout the week is in the hands of God, the greatest evangelistic tool we've been given. And so let's think about how can we invite Christians 
to get together with non-Christians? How can I bring my non-Christian friends and unbelieving family to meals, to parties, to sports events, to music events, to pub quizzes? How can I get crossover? How can I bring about a crossover so that I can expose those people that I'm reaching out to, to my Christian friends, so that they can see the love we have for one another, so that they can hear the conversations that we have amongst one another that are deeper and more heartfelt and more real than perhaps they would experience in the office or the school gate. Perhaps one of the most underestimated tools we have in evangelism is our dinner tables and our teapots. As we think about how could we engage people together as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that together we might proclaim and witness to the glory of God in salvation. So let me just throw that out there. How could we, in 2019, how could we help one another to reach one another's friends? You see, the disciple who is visibly different from other men will have an effect on them. But the church, made up of multiple disciples who are visibly different, not here to parade our own virtue, but to direct people to the God who's changed our lives. That's powerful. You know, um, imagine, uh, let me just think of an illustration. Imagine, right, so we, our deck in the backyard, in our back garden, is rotten, okay? And I'm thinking about ripping it up. Now, imagine if I invited you round, and I've ripped up my deck, and now I've got to dig 18 inches worth of soil out because I want to put a patio down. And you come round and I'm digging with a plastic shovel that you might use to build sandcastles on the beach. Right? What would you say to me? You'd say, it's not really the right tool, Snap. What are you doing? You're a bit of an idiot. Now imagine if I say, let's just get a cup of tea. And as we're having, I put my plastic shovel down and then um, I make us a cup of tea and I lean against something and it's got a big cover over it. And uh, you say to me, what, what, what are you leaning on? And I say, oh, this. It's a digger I hired from HSS. But, you know, I just thought I would use the plastic spade. You'd say to me, you're an absolutely complete idiot. Why are you trying to do, dig your garden with a plastic shovel when you've got a great big digger here? Use that. And so often we go into evangelism with our plastic shovels. We think we've got to dig the ground. We've got to work the hard ground on our own. And, and the tools we've been given, me, I'm, I'm not very effective. And we think, the church, together, we're like a big juggernaut of a digger. Get it into play. Get your people, your non-Christian people, into relationship, into contact, into uh, expose them to the digger of the church and work the hard ground together so that we can plant gospel seeds. Proclaim the gospel together. And if we do that, I think 2019 will make us most effective in our evangelism. And as the world gets uglier and rougher and tougher and louder and ruder and darker, it needs more of the light of Jesus. So let's really think about how we can be a people, a community that worships and witnesses 
for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you this morning for your words. I thank you for the privilege of being your people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Please help us to grow in our proclamation, both in worship and in witness of the excellencies and the glories and the wonders and the mercies and the mightiness of our God and his gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, stir our hearts afresh, I pray, for what you have called us to do, so that in 2019 we might see fruit in lives transformed and people converted and saved from darkness and added into your glorious light. Thank you for making us the greatest building. Thank you for giving us the greatest privileges. And thank you for calling us to this greatest purpose, all by your great mercy. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name.